This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to give you my undercard five fights to watch from UFC 252. We're going to talk to striking coach Randy Steinke. You're going to love this interview about what DC and Stipe 3 might look like on the feet. And then I'm going to give you an overall main event preview in a slightly different way. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. All right, undercard five to watch here. Five fights, not including the main and co-main, that you should watch. Now, undercard is not the same as the prelim card. Undercard is just everything essentially not at the top of the bill. So what would those be on this particular fight card? Well, I'm going to start with the one that is now the opening of the main card itself, the one that's the first fight you'll see when the pay-per-view starts tomorrow, namely Herbert Burns taking on Daniel Pineda. Now, you'll recall... The opening bout was supposed to be Ion Kutelabo taking on Magomed Ankalaev, but they can't do that anymore because Kutelaba got COVID. So that's fun. He, uh, yeah, it is what it is. That fight got scrapped, and now they're going to put Burns versus Pineda. Now, Burns missed weight, which makes this kind of interesting. But Burns is an interesting guy, partly because he's Gilbert's brother, Gilbert Burns' brother. He's very good on the ground. And Pineda is a super interesting guy. He fought in the UFC a long time ago, back in 2012. And he had a win over Mackin Semizire, which you guys may not know. He's from the Virginia area, Pat Schilling. He lost to Mike Brown, you know, understandably. And then he got demolished by Antonio Carvalho. Uh, Was on the Ultimate Fighter, kind of won, kind of lost. Had one more fight against Rob Whiteford and got bounced. Spent some time on the regional scene. Went to Bellator for a few fights. Went one and two there. You know, he lost to Emmanuel Sanchez. Lost to Georgie Karakanian. Went back on the regional scene and did really well. And the way he kind of rejuvenated his career uh, was he went to PFL. And when he went to PFL, I think he won the tournament. Um... So he won the 2019 PFL playoffs, but Nevada uh, is going to, you know, suspended him a little bit. So this is from the MMA Junkie back in January. Following back-to-back first-round finishes of the PFL postseason in October, Pineda was flagged for having elevated testosterone to epitestosterone ratio in his system. The test pulled him from the $1 million featherweight title fight, and he's been dealing with the fallout since. However... At a hearing, Pineda and the commission uh, was announced all of this. He owned up to a banned substance. He was dealt just a six-month suspension, which will conclude April 18th. He was also issued a $12,500 fine and will be required to pay about $1,000 in prosecution fees. And it was eventually lifted, and UFC signed him. So um, here he is. He's a pretty good fighter. You know, he had some tough fights along the way. He has lost to more of the better fighters He has faced, but he's got some decent wins along the way as well. Heavy-handed, willing to strike, total veteran at this point, has 40 fights, and and then some. He's he's sort of an interesting guy. I don't know how it's going to go against Herbert, because Pineda can be overwhelmed by specialists, which Herbert is. We'll talk about that when the predictions happen, but could be a fun fight just the same. Uh, also, we talked about it on the show this week, Dodson taking on Marab Davalashvili. Davalashvili just has this incredible 
motor. I mean, the guy can go and go and go and go. And for a three-round fight, that's not necessarily Dodson's sort of kryptonite, but it does put him in an interesting position to deal with somebody who just has unrelenting, if somewhat unrefined offense. See, that's the difference between Davalashvili and Dotson. Dotson does Dotson is a decent gas tank, not great, not bad, but he's got much more refined skills, and he can thump at that weight class. He had a nice win over Nathaniel Wood in his last outing. About he needed to win, but he won it decisively, stopping him, in fact. So this will be interesting. What happens when youth and vigor? but sort of a lack of refinement meet age without vigor, but complete refinement. It's an interesting test case there. Obviously, JDS versus Rosenstruck is interesting too, but I'll point to some other ones down the card to get you ready. Jim Miller taking on Vince Pichel. This is a super interesting one. Both of these guys are coming off of wins over Roosevelt Roberts. In fact, those are Roosevelt Roberts' only losses, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they are. One of those in 2019 and one of those in 2020. Uh, Roosevelt Roberts is a pretty talented kid, and both of these guys got wins, and they did it very differently. Miller got a submission that was very, very crafty. Vince Pichel, though, just sort of took him down and pounded him out and just just wore on him. This will tell us a lot about what Jim Miller has left. I won't call the submission win over Roosevelt Roberts lucky, but it may not be that, like some fights tell you more than others. How much did that one tell us about how good he really is? We will find out. If he goes in there and you know gives Vince Pichel the business, I would say it says a lot about him that these last two fights went the way that they did. On the other hand, if Vince can do to Robert what he did to Jim, which is a big if, I'm not saying the two are equally skilled, just sort of pointing out if he can do that, I think it would tell you a lot more about how much closer Jim is to the end of his career, which he knows is not very far off. We had him on the show prior to the Roosevelt Roberts fight, and we asked him there, you know, what are you sort of looking for at this point? You kind of done and seen it all. And his answer was just that perfect performance, just that, you know, you went out there and you felt like you were yourself and there was no limit. There was no, there was no nothing. You could just be whatever you tell yourself in your head you are. It's an interesting thought, uh, certainly, but the, the reality about that is if you have a nice performance, it kind of goads you into taking another one because you're like, well, if I can do that well, I should just keep doing these. Um, when in fact, it may not be the best idea. And I don't know what we're going to get against Vince because he has been wildly inconsistent with frequency, right? He fought once in 2012, not at all in 2013. Twice in 2014, okay. Then he missed all of 15, missed all of 16, came back in 17 and one, only one time, came back in 18 twice, fought twice, won one, lost one, came back in 19 and won, and this will be his first fight in over a year. He's had long layoffs. So that's another X factor to keep in mind. He looks like he's the real deal, or at least a very, very formidable challenge. But when you're that inconsistent, what can you really ever get going in terms of momentum? You know, we'll get some good answers to that question as well. Uh, also, we're on the card, you know, Ashley Yoder taking on Olivia Hanato Souza. Ashley Yoder has beaten everyone she was supposed to and lost to everyone that had a name. You know, she lost to Justine Kish. She lost to Angela Hill. She, she lost to Mackenzie Dern. She lost to Random Marcos. And here she is taking on Olivia Hanato Souza. Hanata Sousa, excuse me. 
This is a bit of a weird one for me. When she was an Invicta, she was beating the brakes off of people. I mean, it was unbelievable what she was doing. Okay. She did have the loss to Angela Hill, but it was four years ago. You know, that was only her 10th fight. You thought, okay, you lost to Angela Hill. Barely, by the way, barely. She'll be back. And then, of course, she did. She beat Ayaka Hamasaki. She beat Alex Chambers when she went to the UFC. She beat Sarah Froda. And then she fought Brianna Van Buren, who herself just lost to Tisha Torres. And she lost Hanato Souza. She was like a, this, a little Invicta Amanda Nunes. And then she just hit a roadblock, man. And I don't know what happened there. I really, really don't. Uh, that was a shocking one, to be honest with you. I did not see that coming. So this will be a nice little sort of where is she kind of fight. Felice Herrig is tough, durable. She's a veteran. She's a little bit more skilled than she gets credit. Um, she is coming off of two losses. She hasn't fought since October of 2018. So this is sort of a big moment for her, but um, a real sort of where are they now kind of situation. And then last but not least, I'm going to go with the fighter who is the biggest uh, betting favorite on the card. Um, excuse me, I was talking about, well, I, you know, that, that was it. It was uh, Virna Jandaroba. She has a loss to Carla Esparza, which did not go well, but in general is 15-1. and one. She burned through people in Invicta. You know, she made her debut in the UFC against Carla, which is never going to be easy, you know. And then rebounded nicely against Mallory Martin, dispatching her inside of two rounds back here in D.C. when she fought in December of 2019. So this will be her first fight since. She can do it all, too, right? She's got great submissions. She can strike. Obviously, the submissions is what she's known for. The arm bars in particular, uh, triangles, things from guard, although she's got rear naked choke victories as well. She's a real handful there. So we'll see exactly um, what she's able to do. But that's the thing that it, that's a really interesting fight because if Herrig loses that one, all that talk of that improvement kind of goes away, and you sort of say, "Oh, well, this is the the, the next, the next, um, you know, what do you want to say, the future of the division." So you've got you've got uh, Dotson Devalishvili, you got Burns versus Pineda, Miller versus Pichel, Herrig versus Jan Deroba. And then, of course, Yoder taking on Livia Hanata Souza. Those are my five undercard to watch. This is Aussie Football Rules America with Eddie Maguire. One of my great mates, Russell Crowe. AFL goes great in America because it is a tactical game. It is a game that requires incredible skill and dexterity. You can see the moves of basketball in it. You can see so many areas of athletic prowess. Catch new episodes Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern on Dan Patrick Radio Channel. 211 and listen at home with Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, or however you stream in the house. So I'm always looking for interesting and smart figures in the MMA world, and uh, sometimes you just get stuck in your own ways, and it's hard to look outside of them. But uh, I, you know, and, I, and I'm also in this pandemic, and I, you know, your city may be different, but in mine, you can't really train all that much. So I've been just getting on tutorials, and I found this tutorial called Attacks, Counter, and Feints for MMA by Randy Steinke. And I was like, wow, let me check this out. So I checked it out, and I was blown away at how good it was. I was like, wow, this is really, really good. So I hit him up on Instagram, and I was like, we should get you on the show. It turns out he's actually cornering a fighter there at the UFC this weekend. I thought, even better, he joins us now. It is Mr. Randy Steinke. Hi, Randy. How are you? Good, brother. How are you doing? 
Good, doing well. Uh, Randy, let's get acquainted with your bio real quick. How did you end up being a striking coach? Where do you work, and um, what's your background? Uh, yeah, I've got 32 uh, professional MMA fights myself, and I found myself kind of venturing towards the striking side because I felt like I there was just things that I could see that other coaches weren't seeing, and I felt like I was, you know, I always had a good striking base myself. I had good boxing coaches growing up and, and had some good karate coaches. So I feel like I've, I've built a system now that's really kind of adapted to the way the distance is in MMA and the timing and, and all the things that have really changed. Um, I feel like it really helped me develop this type of system. But I used to train at uh, the MMA lab a long time ago, uh, mm-hmm. back in 2012. And then I had moved across Arizona. So I found myself over at Fight Ready MMA. And I started training a couple of guys over there and I got introduced to Henry Cejudo. You know, we had a sparring round one day and he was, you know, he was kind of impressed with some of the things I was doing. And I gave him some advice, you know, some personal advice when I watched him spar. And he just liked the things that I said and it really helped, you know, just a couple little adjustments. You know, a lot of coaches say too many things, I think. I said two simple little things that made a huge outcome in the rest of his round against, uh, I think he was sparring against uh, Leandro Higo that day. And it just made a lot of good adjustments, so he trusted me, and we kind of developed some things. I came on camp with him after he lost to Demetrius the first time. I got in camp, started helping him a little bit. I wasn't really in the corner until we ended up fighting uh, TJ. I got on the corner with TJ or when we fought TJ and then Marlon. I just learned a lot, and I knew this is something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. You know. So, Absolutely. Randy, I saw... Oh yeah, sorry. You kind of uh, your your signal cut out there for just a second. But I was saying this video I saw was really kind of interesting. Before we get to uh, Stepe and DC, could you sort of briefly surmise what you feel like? Um, like, what do people not understand about MMA striking that you have kind of clued into? Ah, the footwork, man. It's it's, it's, it's the biggest thing is you see in MMA is is the distance control we have safe range, we have kicking range, and we have, in this case, MMA punching range is also grappling range almost. So everyone's range is different you go against. You know, when you go against a Muay Thai guy, it's a lot of north-south, you know, standing in place. Uh, boxing in the same way, there's a little bit more lateral movement, but there's not a lot. But when you go to MMA, there's everyone's got different distance. Karate guys, wrestlers want to be right on you. So you have to be able to move laterally against the wrestlers and you have to be able to, to faint and close distance against the guys that want to, you know, stay in kick range. So I feel like my systems really help you keep your head, have your head and your feet as your compass. So you can always stay centered to have your attacks. Got to have footwork. In Interesting. Okay. So we've been over on the show here all week about how DC won the first time sort of in that clinch. Uh, Stipe had the, uh, the, the right side underhook and then the, the left side controlling the right hand of DC. And then, of course, the, he breaks it, lands the right hand, drops him. Second fight, they're doing this yeah. hand grab. I'm calling it the, I call it the patty cake position. I do not know what the formal term for it is, but, you know, both hands out. And then eventually, Stipe makes the adjustment to dig a left hook to the body. Yeah. And that basically closes the show. Okay. Um, let's start with, the, let's start with this one. Yeah, it's an amazing adjustment, right? But you know what? I was actually noticing this too. I went back and I watched it. Did you realize in the second round of their uh, second fight, he drove like almost eight knees to DC's body on the same side and just yes. went away yes. from it. It was crazy. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I didn't have a key on that, but you're hundred percent correct. I thought that was a great adjustment on him, man. Like, uh, that's why I, I'm so I'm up in the air on this fight. I'm such a Miocha fan. 
But man, Cormier knows how to win. But obviously, so does Stipe. It's tough, man. All right, so let's talk about that. Again, I do not know what the formal term is, but the hand grab position, two hands up. First question is... They call it hand fighting. Yeah, hand fighting, glove control, whatever. Um, Why does it work so well for DC most of the time? And what adjustments could he make if he wanted to keep using it to not get torn up by a body shot like that? Well, that's that opening. When you start reaching like that, you start opening because, you know, all of a sudden my hands are there for you to grab. My hands are there for you to grab. And then I key on that timing. And then I just move my hand and I slip to the left a little bit. So I think if Cormier wants to continue to use that hand grab, he's going to have to level change and almost wrestle. When he sees Steve a level change, he needs to level change and almost meet him down there. I feel. What would that, I mean, for the listeners who may not understand, what would that effectively accomplish? What would be the goal there in the level change? Well, if he was to, when he's reaching for, for Stipe's hands and he, every time that he sees Stipe start to level change, he should drop his guard back down, protect the body and level change too. Now he's ready to protect the body shots or he's ready to just push into the clinch so that body shots not there instead of hand grabbing, hand grabbing and staying tall. He needs to be ready for that next adjustment. Like Stipe made for me. He just wasn't ready for that next adjustment. So another key feature of DC's game is that collar tie. Uh, Stipe would throw usually, you know, a, a, a right straight or a right cross, some kind of punch, you know, relatively level with his shoulder. And then DC would throw that yeah. left hand over the top and collar tie. Do you think that's something yeah. we'll see a lot of, or will there be some adjustments there? You know, I think that's something he does. It's like a check hook motion boxers use it. And it kind of turns into a collar tie motion. It doesn't look the best when he does it, but he, he, he keeps him safe and it kind of keeps him away from eating that right hand. Uh, again, it, it, it could leave him exposed to reaching again. If, if Stipe can time on that. Um, I think that what I would like to see Stipe do a little bit more since DC's right in his face is just set some elbows on him. When he try, when someone tries to grab your wrist, you just elbow, you just roll into the elbows. I think that's something you might see a little more of this week. Hmm. That's interesting. Why didn't they do that? I mean, they probably know to do it. It's just what they weren't thinking about it. Yeah. I, you know, I think the respect of just always being so close to DC, it seemed like, you know, he's punching, he's kind of giving them the space Versus just kind of staying dead red right there, sitting on that, knowing that he's going to come in and, and elbow. But that's the timing game right there. Randy Steinke joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. All right, so another key feature was, and both guys were good at this, leg kicks, inside leg kicks to set yeah. up punches, reset rhythm. Okay, <laughs> you would have to imagine, right, Randy? That's got to be more of a prominent weapon for both of them in this, in this fight. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, an inside like pendulum kick is something guys do when, when they're trying to change the distance where they, you know, you saw Dan Henderson use it against, uh, when he knocked out, oh gosh, what's his name? Bisbee. That little inside low kick just changes the range. You can throw your one, you can throw your jab off the inside. You can throw your hook or your right hand. So it, it kind of gives that little smoke screen. It makes you kind of punch your level a little bit and everything's kind of live after that. So that's why it's a good setup. I would love to see them be a little more aggressive or use that as a feint, not just be so prominent with the leg slap. 
where are you on the modern calf kick? Do you like it? And do you think, I think, uh, by the way, I, I, I'm, I could be wrong about this. I may have counted Stipe throwing one of them in the second fight, but they appear to be all the rage. What is your view on them generally? And then their, their value in this fight specifically? Oh man, I'm huge on them. To be honest, they, I've read many articles, you know, I'm, I'm originally my, my background and my heritage and my family is all the MMA lab. And Ben Henderson one of, was one of the first guys who was clashing people's calves. It kind of changed the, the, the way we sparred in the gym. You kind of had to be mindful of that. Uh, there was a guy named Yassin, Yassin Meza. He fought in the UFC too, fought Chad. We call them low yachties, like hit, hit that yachty. It was something that was just, it, it kind of makes the guy have to respect you. You're striking, even if you're not the best striker. It's like it, it happens so fast. Like Henry Corrales is another guy that beats that thing out so fast. It, you don't have to turn over the hip, but man, it does damage. It does real damage where you can't really base any any weight on. What if if you're coaching uh, one of your fighters and their opponent has a good calf kick? What are the things you can tell your fighter to beat that? What are what are the strategies around solution finding there? I would tell them to stop going first. I would tell them because usually guys calf kick when like when they first see you make that little step. As soon as they they see you start to move forward, they'll blast that calf. So I would honestly start telling my athletes to start countering, start fainting a little bit and drawing the guy out. Stop going first. Kind of go second. You know, for a little bit until he kind of sits off that calf kick and then we can start going first again. What about DC's striking defense where there's, you know, there's a lot of pieces involved here, but the part that I'm uh, questioning about now is he does a lot of that lean trunk movement stuff. What, mm-hmm. what do you make of that? Is, yeah, that a, thought, is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? That's uh, not a good idea. It sets patterns and patterns aren't good in striking. And you saw that when he fought, you know, Jones finally got him up to the head. Um, I was honestly, when I watched the Steve Bay fight the second time, I was kind of curious why he wasn't throwing high kicks, but I'm not a heavyweight. I don't know how hard it is to get that leg up there that many times, you know, but <laughs> I felt like, man, DC has that time. It's a, you can't, you can't give me patterns and you can't give me patterns on your rhythm or where you're going. And then if you give me both, man, it's like, that's double bad news. <laughs> if I know tick talk and I know where you're going off that tick, it kind of gets dangerous. Yeah. I don't so like who- it. So who would you say, like, irrespective of this fight or this card or whatever, who today, when you look at uh, in terms of striking, who's got great defense? Uh, I would say Vicente Luque's got some of the best defense. I think it's clean striking right now. Guys, so tell me why. What, what does he do that's so good? I, I think he has distance control. He can move his feet and evade when he wants to. And then the most important part after that, he can stay inside the pocket and cover you see, I, I think a lot of guys, you know, that are okay or good strikers, they can only do one of those. You know, they're only good at evading, and if they, the distance gets cut off, they're just covering up. You get some guys who can, you know, you touch and they're going to throw back. And, and I, that's what I like about Vicente Luque. He can move his feet and evade when he wants to, and then he can also kind of cover and bang back, which is dangerous because then you don't know what a guy's going to do. You don't know if he's going to pull out the pocket or you don't know if he's going to cover and throw right back. So the timing changes again. He's one of the best, I think, right now, defensively. Anybody else that you like their defense from? I like Poirier, honestly. I think Poirier's got – he did a good job of switching up his defenses. You know, when he fought Max Holloway, he did like that that weird 
elbow, high, shoulder roll. But it works good if a guy's always going to counter back with hands like Holloway did. But then we saw him fight uh, uh, Dan Hooker, and he got totally evaded away from that, which would have got him head kicked and kneed in the stomach. So I thought that was a great defensive adjustment. I don't know if he's the best defensive fighter, but that's pretty smart. If, if you can use something so prominently against one fighter and then totally get away from it because you know it's not good for you, that's huge. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So let's start with DC here. Imagine you were cornering him or coaching him or, you know, some combination of the two. What is something you think he's good at or could pull off here that would be really beneficial for his chances? I would like to see him punch his way back into the clinch again, man, because you guys all saw that fight last time. He knew what he was doing. That, that's something that I would see a lot of guys drill. They either go from the collar tie to the underhook and clash the other side or they go from the underhook and they'll roll the thumb. Does that make sense? Picture me having a right underhook and I'll roll my thumb under and put my arm against their chest and kind of push off and punch. You know, he did the opposite. He went from the collar tie, rolled for the underhook and clashed that left hand. That's, that's different. That's different stuff. And, and I think it takes a long time for, for you to kind of key on that timing. And I think that's where he's ahead of the game when it comes to steep A's. If he can, punch his way, like straight shots down the middle and then get inside and clinch. And then right when Stipe tries to, you know, pummel or tie up, there's your elbow. There's just your slick little punch. I would like to be, that's what I would have the game plan be. Don't stay on the outside. If you're going to hand fight, you're going to hand fight and roll into elbows and close punches to get into close quarters. With him. So. All right. Same question, but now for Stipe. <laughs> I love this. This is so much fun, man. I, I, I figure, and I think I do this with myself daily and like, ask these types of questions. But I think that's one, one thing I like. I, hey, if I was going to fight Adesani, and how would you beat Adesani? Like that, right. Those things are exciting. I would say, you know, for Stipe, uh, I would like to see him continue to use his jab a little bit more. I don't think he used it as much in the last fight as he did the first fight. Um, ah. And wrestle harder. I feel like he needs to disengage from the wrestling a little bit more. Not that he's not good there, but I feel like if he can keep Stipe or uh, keep uh, Cormier at range and use his distance, I feel like that's where he's better. Interesting. And then you mentioned Adesanya, so we'll end here, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, it, we, obviously, this fight between DC and Stipe is going to be at the Apex facility, which means it's going to be in the smaller cage. I think that probably will have an effect. How much, I don't know, but we'll see. Um, but they, it appears for now that Adesanya versus Costa is going to be in the little cage. How much of an impact on that fight will it have? Wow, that's crazy. I didn't, I didn't think about that. That's a good question, man. Um, I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna kind of make those guys stand in the middle. I don't think Izzy's gonna have as much space to move. Um, I think it's obviously a benefit for Borchima, to be honest. Um, I'm rooting for the eraser on that one. He's a good friend of mine. I've been friend with him a couple times. I think he's a monster, and I, I think it, I think one way anybody beats is you have to you have to counter off the front kick if you can. You can start countering hard off the deep kicks, and now you kind of level the playing field again. So that's something I, I we've already kind of talked about, honestly. But you can address those left and right cheap front kicks, kind of even the playing field. He's not going to raise his legs off. Why do people consider? And I'm not one of them. I, you know, I'm. A, I'll, I'll be clear. I'm a huge Adesanya fan of his game, and you know, I, I really think his rise has been fun to watch. 
But if anybody asks me who's the toughest fight you know, he's had to date, obviously he has not fought Costa yet. But to me, it's Costa by a million miles, man. Why do people consistently not give Bohashinya credit? They, oh, yes, they give him credit for being a physical specimen and a hard puncher. Okay, but not for his skills. Why? Yeah, man, I, you know, I haven't been able to kind of wrap my head around that, to be honest. I think uh, I think it might be a little bit of, of just how he is and who he is. He's, you know, pretty flamboyant guy. and uh, You know, if you don't know him, I think he might rub you the wrong way. So I think a lot of that is people's personal opinions. It's not one to get credit. But I think he already knows he deserves it. Do you know what I mean? Almost in that mm. type of sense. I don't think it's right by any means, but. You'll see it. He's going to get his day where no one can deny him. You know, like Henry's kind of in the same boat. Cejudo, when I was training him, you know, the guy's proving everybody wrong, but he still can't get, you know, he's just not going to get it from some people because it's not just about your skill. Carry yourself sometimes. All right, I lied. I do. I do have one more because I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, yeah. So I love it. Henry. Henry wants to fight Volkanovski. Now I have to tell you, I'm not an expert. I trained for about a decade, but you know, as a hobbyist, I'm just a guy who was trying yeah. to have fun. It gives me a little bit of literacy, not much. I have to tell you, watching <laughs> Volkanovski is, is is the hardest thing in the world for me because he's doing so much. It's it's really hard for me to wrap my head around. I like Henry, and he proved me wrong several times. But but a fight against Volkanovski might be a bridge too far. Where where are you on that idea? Yeah, you know it, you've got to shoot for the shoot for the stars, and maybe you'll land on the moon. You know, I I, got, I give the guy credit for always reaching out where no one else has. Um, it's a tough one, but I think it's I think it's a, if you're gonna do it, if you're gonna call out someone in the forty five pound division, I don't think anyone's better to do than Volkanovski. Just when it comes to size-wise and matchup-wise. Like, we're not fighting a guy who's, you know, I think Max Holloway would be a tougher fight for Henry, just style-wise. Personally, just how I've seen him train guys in the gym, do I think it'd be a, a hard fight for Henry? Absolutely. But I think it would be the best matchup out of anybody else in the 145-pound division that's in that higher top three, top four tier. I mean, of course, Aldo, I think he's Aldo, but I just mean those other guys up there, like Holloway and Volkanovski, I think he'd even have. I think I think he's gonna. I think he'd have a tougher time with Peter Yan, even dude, just because those guys are tough. Yeah, Peter is, is super tough. Hey, uh, I really enjoyed this, Randy. Your videos, I'll share them on social media because I just, Thank well, you, I won't buddy. give away the secrets, but I'll let people know about them. <laughs> we got to get you We got to get you back on. This was great, Randy, and I know you're cornering uh, 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 Kelly for his fight, so yeah. wish you nothing but the best of luck. Enjoy your time there, and uh, we'll talk soon, man. This was great. Thank you, bro. I appreciate your time. Yeah, again, tune in to Tony Kelly, man. He's uh, been working hard. Uh, he's going to It's the first fight of the night. He's going to set off fireworks. The guy really is excited about hurting someone. That's, that's the cool thing about it. Appreciate you guys. <laughs> All right. We'll be, we'll be on the lookout. Thank you, Randy. There he goes. All right. Hey everyone. This is Lisa Ann and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, the Lisa Ann experience. This is my chance to share with you my experiences past and present, including how I went from living in the fantasy world of adult films to talking fantasy sports on Sirius XM. Each week, I'll introduce you to some of the people I've met on my journey and invite friends on to help me read through the endless ridiculousness that lands in my inbox. New episodes are available every Wednesday on the SiriusXM app and Apple Podcasts. It is time for my main event preview. 
And now it's time for the Luke Thomas Main Event Preview. All right. Main Event Preview. UFC 252 headlined by Stipe Miocic taking on Daniel D.C. Cormier. This is their uh, third meeting in as many fights. Right? Uh, no, that's not quite true. No, that's actually that's not true at all. Well, the, I think it is for Stipe, but it's definitely not true for DC because he snuck in. Yeah, it is true for Stipe, but uh, for DC, he snuck in that Lewis fight, I believe, um, in between. Yeah, he did. So uh, not quite. So it's the third meeting for both um, and as many fights for Stipe and four meetings for DC. Neither here nor there. Now, you guys know the story of how DC won the first time. And you know the story of how Stipe won the second time. But like all things, there is more to the story. I could go through and give you the numbers on this. I don't know how valuable it is. You know, Cormier and uh, DC, or excuse me, Stipe, they've got roughly similar numbers all the way down. You know, they more or less go for the same amount of takedowns. DC's got a slightly higher accuracy, very slightly better uh, takedown defense percentage. You know, but neither guy's really all that dominant. Well, DC was more dominant than uh, Stipe on the ground, but uh, it's an opportunity there. They landed about the same clip. Uh, Stipe takes more punches, noticeably, you know, and has a uh, eight-inch reach advantage, if you want to call it that, uh, and is also five inches taller. Okay, so those are all the things that if you want to think about, you can think about, right? Uh, here's what I want to do for this preview. I'm going to tell you how DC... I'm going to actually let me do this. I'm going to remind you about the story of how DC won the first fight. I'm going to remind you of the story of how Stipe won the second. But here's what I'm going to do. I have spent the entire week going through their first two fights. And what I found in those two fights were lots of things that both fighters did really well, but didn't do enough of. You got to understand something. Whenever you have a trilogy, you can make an adjustment, but you can't go crazy with it. You got to stay consistent, tweak a few things, because those tweaks carry major consequences. So you got to, you know, you got to make sure you have the right system in place, but you can't go too crazy with it. For example, if you look at their weights from the first fight to the second fight, there was a massive change for um, Miocic and Cormier. Both went down uh, at least 10 pounds. Miocic went down about 12. Well, this time Miocic came back up three. Not a crazy adjustment, just a little bit. Cormier actually went down one half of a pound. Not a crazy adjustment, just a little bit. Fine-tune the details. Why do I bring that up? Because if you've already shown a capacity to do these things, not merely in fights more generally, but against this particular opponent, so DC for Stipe, Stipe for DC, why couldn't you do that again? Again, you might have to switch it up a little bit, tweak it a little bit, but why couldn't you go back to it? So what do I mean? First, how did DC win the first fight? There's lots of things to the story, but the basic one is this. Commonly, you found Stipe in the clinch. And in that clinch, he would have a right-handed underhook, means under the armpit of DC, and he would use his own left hand to control the right hand of Cormier. 
That makes sense, right? I've got the underhook, so I've got the inside position on my right side, and with my left side, I'm controlling the right hand, the dominant hand of Cormier. But the problem is, Cormier slipped out, and he put in the underhook. So that forced Stipe to turn, and when he did, he faced Cormier. Cormier ripped his hand out, the right one, threw it right over the top and dropped him. Hands down. Boom. Got him. That's the story of the first fight. What's the story of the second fight? Pretty much a back-and-forth affair, although DC was probably winning more. But it was, you know, it was, it was pretty closely contested. DC won the first round, took him down, actually held him down for half the round. Folks kind of forget about that. Um, but then after that, it was, you know, exchanging on the feet a little bit, doing the whole patty cake position. That's not what it's called. It's just what I call it, where their hands come out and they kind of touch each other. And then DC would, you know, throw a punch over the top or a combination or, you know, something like that. And DC was generally getting the better of that, but they were going back and forth. It was in the fourth round at about two minutes left. They go back to that patty cake position and Stipe does what? He drives a left hook underneath the hands of Cormier to the body. And he did it over and over and over and over and over again to the point where he landed 14 of those just in round four. Now, it wasn't just the body shots that got him. Those were the, I mean, the main ingredient. So don't misunderstand me. It was the most important one. But there were other details, which is that two things happened. One, if Cormier gets hit with a good shot, he likes to return it right away. He likes to answer, which is not the worst thing in the world, but you got to be careful about that sometimes. The other thing was Cormier and Stipe were kind of both just standing in front of each other for long periods of it. They weren't using a lot of footwork and feints and in and out. They were just kind of slugging it out. So DC gets hit with this vicious, vicious left hook to the liver and doesn't really move. He is kind of slowed at this point and compromised. He uses trunk movement, right, and leaning to get away from punches. But if you've been kind of compromised and you're, and you're hurt and you're tired, it's going to be harder and slower for you to get out of the way. So what does Stipe do? Boom, rips the left to the body. Cormier takes a step back, but not really, just stays in front of him. And, D and Stipe fires a one-two right down the middle. Jab, cross, boom. And that rocks him, and then he follows him up and finishes him off. That is the story of the first fight. That is the story of the second fight. And so you think to yourself, well, what is possible in the third? We're going to get Randy Steinke on, the striking coach. So we'll talk to him about it. But there's a few things that I noticed from the first and second fights that both guys did really well. Let me tell you what I think you should look out for. I'm not saying that they should use these things. I'm saying that they could because they already have and it already worked. Let's start with DC. First of all, the wrestling. I already told you in the second fight, do you guys remember he picked up Stipe over his shoulder, walked him to the center of the octagon, dumped him on the mat and held him there for the rest of that round. A good almost three minutes. Great round for him. I'm not saying he has to do that every round, but probably mixing it up is going to be something that he wants to do. That's the first. Second of all, the leg kicks. DC throws leg kicks that are hard. So hard that he would spin Stipe Miocic around. I caught two different times where he was able to rotate Stipe almost 360 with how hard his leg kicks are. Why isn't he doing more of that? That seems like something he could easily get behind. Also, boxing at range. In the second fight, DC would level change and act like he was going for a single. Hands would come down from Stipe, but it was all just a fake, and he would come up and pop him in the face. He only did it a couple times every time it worked. 
Why would he not get back to more of that? I'm not saying you can't play the patty cake thing, but you might want to limit the amount of it. And at space, where he has the speed and explosion advantage, right? He is the quicker of the two athletes. That seems like something he could do. Now, if you really want to play the patty cake thing, again, I don't think you should just abandon it, but you want to be careful about it. How do you avoid the left hook to the body from Stipe? Well, you do what Volkanovski does. Instead of getting both of your hands out there, just put the one hand out there and grab it authoritatively. So that would be your right hand to their left hand. And then be proactive with the other side. Volkanovski did this all, all the time with, with Holloway. He would stick his right hand out and touch and control Max's left, and then he would blitz him on the other side of his body. Sometimes it landed, sometimes it didn't. Yet again, it's just because you hold it doesn't mean it's going to work. But the idea there is if I can control one side, I know what you're going to do with the other one. I can just, I, I only have to worry about one side at that point. And if I'm the one initiating the offense, I'm going to be much more likely to get it off in my terms. So playing with that a little bit, rather than doing two hands all the time, one hand and work around it. That's another option for him. Uh, and there are many other things you could do beyond that as well, right? So the fainting, in and out, leg kicking, fighting at boxing range. By the way, he has a great switch kick, DC. A couple times where he would switch his stance very quickly and then go away would drill a hard roundhouse kick to the body. Why not do more of that? It already worked. Stipe kind of gassed a little bit in that fight. Slow him down. Leg kick him to the body. Safer distance. Switch kick to the body. Safer distance. Fight with one hand. Get out if you don't like the position. Level change. Wrestling. All kinds of stuff is an option for you there. Right? So now, what about Stipe? What were things that worked in the first two fights that he could potentially come back to? What were some tricks of the trade there for him? Oh, and by the way, let me do one more for DC. That collar tie that he does. I think you can do it, but you got to do it, land one shot, two shots at most, and then get out. The problem was he would kind of hang out in that position. So to me, it's going to be a lot more movement, a lot more setups, a little bit more distance, and a little bit more diversity. And I think he can do a lot with it. So what about Stipe? What can he build on? Body work. Folks, if you go and look at the numbers on their second fight, what was the round where D, excuse me, what was the round where Stipe landed the most amount of body shots? The answer is round four, right? The one where he stopped him. Okay, pop quiz. In what round did he land the second most? The answer is round two. But you might be saying, Luke, I don't recall him throwing punches to the body in round two. How can that be the case? Great question. The reason why is because, and this was forgotten, I guess, knees. Knees to the, to the gut. DC would try to walk into him, pressure him forward, and rather than trying to punch to the gut, which again ended up working, I don't know how much he'll be able to replicate that, he would just knee him to the body. Surprise him. Split his timing. It was great. Do more of that. That way, and by the way, he was never threatened with a takedown on, on any of those attempts, ever. He landed eight of those. Eight and then just stop doing it. Get, get back to that. Number two, he could go for the wrestling. Now, that's the thing that I would be careful about because DC is going to make that hard on you, but at least establishing some kind of a threat might be beneficial. We talked about the leg kick with DC. Dude, Stipe had leg kicks in the second fight where he was able to time it off of the punch of Cormier from the same side and off-balance him. So Cormier is throwing a punch. He's in the middle of throwing it. 
Stipe's timing was so good, he could land a kick on the same side and take him off of his feet. I mean, come on, folks. You got to be kidding me. Why aren't you doing more of that? He can go inside. He can go outside. He can use it to set up his punches. All kinds of stuff. Where is that? How about reimagining the clinch? Did you guys notice, again, the position for Stipe where he got caught in the first fight? Remember, one more time, right underhook, that means underneath the armpit, on the right side for Stipe, left hand controlling the right hand of DC. That's the position he got caught from. How did he fix that the second time? Well, rather than moving into the right hand and thinking you're safe because you're controlling it, he didn't even bother with it. He would let go of his left hand and then put it on the left shoulder of DC, stick his elbow out, and frame across the face, sort of putting his forearm between him and DC. And then with that underhook, controlling the left arm of DC and escaping to DC's left side. Before he was trying to escape to the right side, but DC was greeting him with the right hand. He switched it up. He went to the other side. That was an adaptation that he made from the first to the second fight. But it also so happens a couple times in this fight, in the second one, from that position, framing off with the left, he would just fire the right hand behind it. You're setting yourself up. Conor McGregor does that all the time. He'll put a hand on someone's shoulder to see exactly where they are. Commonly, they press into him. He frames off that left hand, or that right hand in his case, because he's a southpaw, but then fires the, his cross. Stipe did the exact same thing in the second fight. Why not do more of that? On the takedowns, when DC got taken down, he would get up. He's worried about scrambling. He got drilled with body shots and knees to the head, I think two times from situations like that, from Stipe. Why not do it? When Stipe would delay his timing, he had success. How do you throw a one-two? Okay, you throw a one, then you throw a two, but it's all in the timing, right? You can throw a one-two, you can throw a one-two, right, to disguise it so it comes right behind it, or you can do what Stipe did in the second fight, where he would throw a one, and then instead of going a one-two, he would go a one-half-beat-two. Just a small half-beat. Why was he doing that? Because how does DC dodge punches? He goes left, he goes right, but he uses his trunk and his head to lean away. When you lean at the most position before you go to the next one, that is an off-balanced position. You can do it, but it has to be in transition. Well, rather than just mechanically throwing the two behind the one, he would throw the one, which DC would move out of the way from, and then he would not just throw the second one behind it, he would wait just a small half beat for DC to be at the end of that movement and then throw it. So he would catch him at the most vulnerable moment between positions for DC. Because if you just threw a one-two, DC's going to either block the first one and then dodge the second one or dodge both. So what if you just delay the timing a little bit? He thinks he's in the clear. Boom, you caught him. How about that? And last but certainly not least, this was something I had paid attention to. In the first fight, Stipe had a lot of success pushing DC into the fence. He would clinch up with him there in that common position. Remember, right underhook, left hand. But against the fence, DC was not the same threat. Stipe would use the fence as a wrestling buddy. If Stipe has to wrestle in the clinch, and we're talking MMA wrestling here, so there's strikes involved, 
But if he has to do that in open space, you know, that's a hard thing for him to do well in. It's not that easy. But if he has a wrestling buddy and he can press Cormier into it, Cormier might be able to get out of it, but he's a lot less dangerous to Stipe. And Stipe, if he's pressing him in, can be the one to release and then strike on the exit. Even if you don't get the takedown, if you're going to lock up with Cormier, press him into the fence. He had so much success nullifying many of the things DC does well, not because he's a better pure MMA wrestler in the clinch than DC, no, but with the fence, he is quite formidable. These are things I am not making up. These are not just ideas I concocted out of nowhere. These are things both men have already done to the other guy. These are things that I'm not saying you can bring them all back, but what I am saying is there are options to tweak, bring back, select, re reimagine, but we already know they work. We're not talking about major changes for the third fight. We're talking what works slightly fine-tuned. These are things that already fit that description. It'll be very curious to see how they win and, uh, and with what weapons. Going to be interesting. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.